This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. My name is Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. In today's episode features my conversation with Dr. Phil Glasgow on excelling as a physical therapist in high performance. We'll explore what's like working in a high performance environment, delve into the technical and non-technical skills essential for thriving in such a setting. Additionally, we will discuss ensuring efficiency and complete athlete recovery before their return, navigating the pressure of time constraints and addressing the final decision-making authority in athlete recovery. Effective communication strategies with coaches and athletes, along with managing expectations, will also be covered. If this topic piques your interest, please stay tuned and keep listening. Our guest, Phil Glasgow, is a physical therapist with over 20 years of experience in high-performance sports. He has provided support to teams and athletes at major events, including three Olympic Games, two Commonwealth Games, and the Rugby World Cup. Phil served as the Chief Physiotherapy Officer for the most successful British Olympic team in history at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. Currently, he holds the position of Head of Performance Support for the Irish Rugby Football Union. Phil is also a visiting professor at the School of Sport at Ulster University, contributing to various postgraduate programs at several UK and European universities. In 2019, he received an honorary fellowship from the Faculty of Sport and Exercise Medicine, Ireland, in recognition of his outstanding work. Phil is a regular presenter at international conferences, sharing insights on performance, leadership, and sports medicine. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. PT ProTalk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Fitter First, your first choice for the best Canadian-made rehab and fitness products since 1985. Remote therapeutic monitoring sounds great, but also difficult. Sarah Health makes RTM simple and easy for your patients and providers. Check out sarahealth.com to learn more. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for physical therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated members network. Hi, Phil. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? Yeah, really good, Mariana. It's super to be with you. Awesome. So let's start talking about your career and your background for the ones that don't know you yet. Yeah, um, I, I guess I've been working as a physio or being a, a PT for 27, 28 years now, quite quite a while. And uh, I know I'm, uh, I maybe look younger than that, but... Uh, I graduated, uh, worked in the UK and uh, worked in the NHS and uh, worked in hospital settings, worked across different spaces, but always had an interest in sport and always an interest in teaching and research. So I did a couple of degrees after that. I did a, a couple of postgrad, master's in research, uh, my PhD around muscle physiology, and then also did another master's in philosophy, theology, and um, worked in the university, worked in sport and some private practice. And I've been working in high-performance sport really full-time for the last 20 
one years, 20 years or more. Um, currently have a role where I ha- I'm head of performance support within Irish rugby. That's the federation covering all of the sports and national teams. Um, but I also then have an arm where I do a lot of consultancy and uh, coaching and mentoring, executive coaching and mentoring within sport, PT and, and outside of that as well, as well as still being research active and doing some teaching. Very, very cool. Uh, and I remember you mentioned about the Olympics, the the Rio 2016, yeah. right? Yes, you'll, so. you'll, you'll appreciate uh, Rio yes. here. I, I had the opportunity. I worked within the UK high performance sort of Olympic system for 14 years. And as part of that, you know, I, I uh, worked at the Beijing Olympics. And then when we hosted the Games in London in 2012, and then I was the chief physio for the Team GB, the British Olympic team, through the Rio cycle, which was was fantastic and outstanding games. Um, lots of really happy memories, and and thankfully the British team, we were really successful there as well. So beautiful place, which you know very well, I'm sure. Yes, I was there. I was there watching it. So that's pretty exciting. And what an experience! I just imagine like being Olympic Games and being. Uh, part of that team that's just I'm just curious to yeah. ask you about how the experience was yeah I think I think the Olympic Games are like nothing else like do I've, I've worked across lots of different sports and environments and the Olympic Games are really special and it's certainly the biggest show on earth in terms of just the logistics of it and you know the media and broadcast side of things but for example I think in Rio we had 366 athletes from 28 different sports um so bringing a lot of people together and then you've people from all over the world living in the olympic village um, and the beauty of it as well is that multi-sport environment i think is particularly enjoyable i love learning from different sports and getting the chance to experience sports that i would normally work with um, but one of the great things is the cross-fertilization that we're able to have within olympic games and you know the performance center where perhaps you've got you know track and field gymnastics, boxing, rowing, all these athletes coming together and you know, we're, we're working with those athletes. They're training in, in a similar space. Um, the treatment space, you know, in the, the treatment bed side by side, these guys are there. Great conversation. So it's it's a really unique environment and, and one I think that, that for me epitomizes what high performance is. Um, and But yet you see it, how it shows up in lots of different ways for different sports and different people. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, it's it's probably my my first true love if you like in terms of professionally is the the Olympic sport and the Olympic games. And so what what was your role there? My more specific like what would you do on your day to day in in the yeah. Olympic games? So I, I guess my my role at the in the Rio games was as, as the chief physio for the team. So uh, as I said, we had all of those different sports and all of those athletes. Um, so uh, I guess it had, had a number of different components to it. One was that oversight managerial type of role, just making sure everything worked and making sure the performance center worked, making sure staff, staffing and rotors and, uh, and so on. Uh, I think really importantly, ensuring that we were um, working in a really close interdisciplinary way that we were well aligned across strength conditioning and all of our different medicine science colleagues that we work closely. Um, dealing with all of the issues as they arose was a big part of it. So if you like um, 
crisis management or problem management. Um, my role in that was, if you like, was a little bit of a firefighter. So where there were problems that would occur in different sports or different um, uh, competitive environments, my role was actually to, I guess, to go in, try and establish what the issue was, try to help out. And that may have been something um, straightforward or difficult, if you like, as a as a clinical presentation of a particular injury or a problem. It may have been something around um, some of the the venue really uh, issues, uh, or it could be something around team or illness or or staffing. So uh, very varied in that. But uh, I guess that uh, the key thing for me in that role was ensuring that every sport and every practitioner within the sport. So we had over forty uh, physios, PTs working within the team, ensuring that everyone had what they needed to support the athletes to be able to perform to the best of their ability. And a big stated aim that we had in that was, how do we create the optimal environment to enable people to make history? That was why we were there. We were there to be the most successful um, we had ever been, and, and actually was the most successful British Olympic team ever in terms of winning um, medals. And, and I guess it was to try and ensure that nothing that happened would get in the way of that. Yes, that's that's awesome. And it's a big responsibility. So many people to oversee and problems to resolve. And and I'm, as you are talking, I was thinking that is not as technical, but it could be. But it's more, I guess, on the other side that you, I know you like to talk about your leadership and all these other soft skills that you have to develop. So that's yeah, very interesting. I guess the technical bit is still really critical, isn't it? You know, when when you're um, the day before an Olympic final and someone has an acute back spasm and is is having a bit of a meltdown and, you know, you, you've got to treat them and you've got to get them back out competing, your clinical skills need to be pretty, pretty good in that sense. Um, and I guess my role within um, London Games and the Beijing Games before that um, was a more hands-on clinical role. Um across one or two different sports. So, you know, that, um, I guess for, for me, you know, and we may, may talk about it a little bit, Mariana, is it's not an either or to, to be in these positions. It's, it, it's not enough just to have the soft skills and not be really good technically. Similarly, yeah. you can be really good technically, but you won't be able to thrive in some of these other positions unless you've got these on, other skills as well. On top of being an excellent practitioner, you have to develop all these other skills. So it's just... <laughs> for sure. For sure. And I, and I think um, in a profession like ours, which is the technical bit is so important. It's really important to focus on being technically good. And I, and I do think it's very difficult, particularly in sport. Now, you, you could also say it's, it, it applies elsewhere, but particularly in sport, it's very hard to do well if you don't have the credibility as a good practitioner. Yes, And absolutely. I think that's critical. Absolutely. And so let's start defining what is high performance because you mentioned that that looks different to different sports. And so like, how would you define high performance and what does it look like? That's a really good question, and you know, with, which probably has lots of different answers, um, very contextual, um, and and lots of people define it in different ways. But but for me, I think it relates to an environment of excellence, and and I guess just like excellence, that sort of paraphrase of of Aristotle, if you like, as excellence is is not an event but a habit. 
you know, and high performance is not a thing that you do as a one-off. It's a consistent thing around an environment. And, and by definition, it obviously implies that people are performing at the highest level. Um, but for me, what it really means is high performance is about an environment that uh, supports people to be the best they can be. And that that's something that, that if you like, enables people collectively to fulfill the best potential and possibilities and growth to enable them to be the best they can be right now, but also moving so they can be the best they can be in one year's time, five years time. And I think that, you know, lots of people like to use the term high performance, but but for me, high performance is a thing that happens in the, in the here and now, and it's something that then evolves and grows over time. So it's not a static thing, I think, really importantly, um, because what was high performance 10 years ago is probably not high performance right now. And if we fast forward 10 years, so so I guess in a nutshell for me, high performance is probably the coming together of expertise and potential um, in response to the demands of the environment right now for for a group of people to enable them to perform to the best of their ability. Do you know, I think... That's that's what what it is for me. It's about about excellence, um, and so um, I, I guess does that answer the question? No, that's very long winded, yes. and I would love to be able to to to, to <laughs> be a bit more reductionist about it. But but for first and foremost, for me, it's an environment of excellence, and then there's all the things that define excellence. Can you describe that experience of working in the environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess then the the idea of if what. If we have an idea of what a high performance is, then understanding what that looks like, and the, and I think the first thing about about being in a high performance environment is, you know, I describe it as a very vital environment, one that's that's um, got energy and and is alive and and enthusiasm. I think that's one. It's it's not a dull environment um, to be in. Um, I think it's also one that is really highly connected and and where we have a group of people who are connected together because you know I, I absolutely believe that it's impossible to be really great on your own you can't you know we need other people and so high performance by definition is about a connected group of people because we know connected groups have greater levels of trust greater levels of performance greater um, ability to work more effectively together and so when you look at a high performance environment and if I'm working in one, it's one where I feel really connected to the people around me and I'm connecting in lots of different directions. Do you know, I'm, I'm, con- and, and one in every day where I look for opportunities to connect. And I think, you know, am I connecting horizontally and vertically, if you like, with my peers? Well, with the people within my team, but am I also connecting with the people who are the seniors, the people who are managers, or or the other people that I'm responsible for managing, are we connecting in every direction, and and are we doing things that mean that our work is about how we get better together? I think for me, that's what it's like to be in a really good high performance environment. The other thing I think that characterizes high performance environment is that people are clear why they're there. Do you know, and I think that that I think is 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 really important. And so when I work in a uh, in a high performance environment, what it's like to be there. I know why I'm there. I know what my job is, and I know what a good job looks like. And that I probably have a shared goal with the people around me, if if that makes sense. Um, and and that helps create a shared piece of work, a shared identity, and a, and shared values that enable us to know that this is who we are and this is how we work. 
And I assume by what you're saying that communication is very important to make sure that you're all connected, as you mentioned. Mm. So I'm going to just jump to my question that I was going to ask you later. Yeah. But how about the communication? So how do you ensure that you are connecting well with coaches and athletes mm. and the whole team? Do you know, um, it's one of those questions we often ask, what are some of the most important non-technical uh, attributes or what are the things to help us succeed in our in our roles? And communication is always right up there, isn't it? Um, and in the many of the roles that I have now in terms of overseeing things and trying to lead teams, is the biggest challenges I face tend not to be the clinical ones nowadays. You know, we, most things we can figure out. Um, some of them don't always go the way you want, but they're not my biggest challenges. The biggest challenges are more around people challenges. And often when we really track it back, it's often around misunderstanding and miscommunication. And, and so communication is really central. And, and I think that you know, communication only ever happens in the context of relationship. You know, and so um, particularly in teams. So how I can really take time to build strong relationships with the people around me and really understand them at a, at a professional, at a personal level, then I think that helps to inform us uh, in terms of how we communicate well. But, but I guess, um, you know, how, how we build some of those skills of, of communication, you know, it, it, and this is very applicable across the board, isn't it, to lots of different settings, is, is that we, we take time to really understand the people that we're with. Um, you know, it's the old thing, seek first to understand and then be understood, uh, to learn to listen intently and clearly, to be really present and to understand what the context of the conversation is about. It, it, it often amazes me when we're having conversations, how at times people don't really think, you know, what's the purpose of the conversation or what's the purpose of the meeting? What are we really trying to achieve? Are we on the same page? Um, and so creating some alignment and, and clarity on that can really help guide uh, much of our, our conversations. Um, and so, like, you know, I, th I think that built about building relationship, um, having good understanding of the people, understanding why you're there. And then w when we really listen, then we're responding. You know, it, it's not a case of just waiting your turn to speak. Yeah. And we've, I'm sure you've had many conversations like that. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just like you have to take time to listen and, and really talk to people and understand Right, because I think a lot of people, most people, we are all in a hurry to get our stuff done, check the box, read the goal, and not taking really time to, to talk to people, yeah. and listen, and give and, ourselves time. And, and I guess in, in that, if we think of many of the, the rela different relationships we have, we have obviously relationships with our peers, but if we think of our, our athletes, our patients, our, you know, for us, our coaches, um, taking time to really build strong relationships with those people and and to establish you know i really quite like the concept of building the working alliance and you know the working alliance was described by borden back in the 70s from a and it's very much from a psychology therapy psychotherapy perspective but it's been applied and often referred to as the therapeutic alliance in healthcare and i think the three key things that that he identified in in that paper which which i i think still hold true today he talks about bonds goals uh, uh, and tasks and so first of all we've got to build a, the bonds you know, we've got to have build rapport 
build a relationship, have a sense of um, we're, we're on the same page um, and that we're, we're cooperating. There's a, a sense at least for some people, it might be a real sense of closeness, but it'll be a sense of, of, of trust. And there's lots of things that can, you can describe that relationship. Um, the other part then, there's both the goals part is, what, what, you know, what are we trying to achieve here? What is it that we're trying to achieve? With the clarity of what it of what it is we're trying to achieve, and you can see how this applies to any, any therapeutic um, encounter. Never mind the broader environmental piece. What what does a good outcome look like? Um, so how often have we had cases, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, where sometimes I've been guilty of running forward with athletes, thinking this is what they want, and thinking. You know, and I'd set the goals, but not really come down and setting those goals together and having clarity on those. So having real clarity around goals in the context of bonds. And and then the tasks part is, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then this is what you're going to do. And this is how we're going to work together. Uh, and and that's our expectations of each other. And I think if you get those three things um, working really well, it, it provides the basis, I think, for successful relationships, successful communication and successful outcomes. And like when you are talking about that, I'm just thinking applying that to like our patients that we see on our day to day when you have an assessment that it's aligning those expectations because for you, what you wanted them to achieve, it's not necessarily what they wanted to achieve. Totally. So like their goal is they have some functional goal that we have no idea, but we are not going to know if you don't ask and then mm. trying to align those yeah. expectations and I just think when you're talking about it that's in a much bigger scale and level because you have so many people and expectations of coaches and athletes and, and how do you manage all of those expectations you have to be communicating very effectively mm. to yeah to make sure you're you are on the right track for sure and the I think success that's... looks the same for everybody right totally uh yeah and and I, I think I think you make a really, um, really important point about expectations. And, you know, uh, I, I can think of an example of, you know, uh, a couple of years ago where we, we, I was within one of the teams and we were having a multidisciplinary meeting around a, a particular player who was very important to the team um, who had, had some injury challenges. And there we had a number of coaches. We had... The, the medical director, we had the, the PT staff, the strength conditioning staff, nutrition, psychology, everybody in the room. And it started with, with one of the, and, and I was there as well from the, from the governing body perspective to try and, and coordinate the conversation. But we, we started with one of the, the physios providing a, a detailed overview of the injury um, with some slides and then and here is the, the the proposed plans. Now I have to admit there was way too much detail, and I was starting to get a little bit bored. Okay, so <laughs> but, but um, but by the time the person said, "Here's Plan A and Plan B around management of this player," but by the, by the time he had finished, the coach just went, "Yeah, there is no Plan A or Plan B. He, I need him to play next Saturday." Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and you know, immediately like all that work was irrelevant and. And to me, it was a great example of not taking time to really understand beforehand what the coach wanted and what his expectations were. Yeah. And, and I, I can remember then stepping in and saying, okay, so you, you, you say you want them to play in these key games coming up. We've heard that there's some issues. Um, so what is the least amount of training you think he can do and still perform at the highest level? 
Um, also, in order to get on top of this particular condition or issue that he has, um, we're going to need to take some time. When do you think there's an opportunity for us to be able to get that? And how can we work together so that we have the best performance on the field, yet we protect the health of the player? Okay, that's the conversation. Let's have a let's talk about that. So that's the starting point, wasn't it? Not here's the problem, here's my plans, now I'm going to try and sell it to you. Yeah. So it's much more of a conversation and a discussion. And and for me, that was not about the expertise of the practitioners, but it was about a, a, a not taking time to really understand the expectations of the coach and there being a mismatch in, in that expectations. Yes, that's a great example. And I, that's something that I was curious to ask you about, like how do you deal with that pressure of time? Like he, he needs to play next, next Saturday. So like, how do you go about that? Is, if it's impossible to have like a full recovery, like you said, so they know they're going to have to risk playing that way and then getting more injured. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's, that's our bread and butter isn't it, of, of our yeah. weekly um, challenges of working in high-performance sport and the pressures that, that go with that. I think, I think there's a couple of really important starting points, Mariana, in this. Um, and, and one is in ha- entering into the conversation around our decision-making and around management of that pressure. My goal is not to win an argument. My goal is to try and solve a problem. Yeah. And I think it's a really Im- important um, distinction. So often I see people coming into conversations and they're trying to say, this is what I think needs to happen and try to come prepared so they win an argument. And no, so I, I approach it much, okay, here's the issue. Here's the problem. So how do we find a solution here? Because this guy isn't fully fit. We're trying to get him back quicker than we would ideally want. Um, but these games are really important. So let's put our heads together and try and find a solution on this because I think too often medics and physios see their role in making the decision around return to play rather than bringing their expertise and perspective to help everyone make a better decision. They're two fundamentally different things. And so the the other thing I think is, and this is, this might sit um, uh, for, for, for some people who are listening to the podcast, may, may recognize themselves, and I certainly would have been guilty of this in the past, is that in so often we think our success or failure is tied to who we are and our identity as practitioners within sport. Because that's what certainly I think as professionals, many of us feel like that, but certainly high performance sport in particular. So if I do a good job, if I get this, uh, then People will view me well, and I work with a high perf- high performance, high profile athlete or sport. Therefore, it's important for me to be the expert and get everything right. And so, when our decision making is is based a little bit around myself and my ego and how it might have come across, that's going to get in the way. So, it's a bit about almost getting out of our own way to have the conversation to try and solve the problem and have a really good discussion. And, and so to me, then it comes back to the previous point, doesn't it? Around if I've got good relationship, I'm clarity on what the goals, I've got clarity on what the goals are, then the pressure actually starts to lift because we know that we're not going to get those decisions right 100% of the time. Because um, it's it's what my uh, colleague and friend, uh, Nicole Van Dyke, talks about you know, when it comes to preventing hamstring injuries. We know that sprinting, causes hamstring injuries. So if you don't want any hamstring injuries, then don't sprint. 
But sport's not like that. Yeah. So if we don't want people to get re-injured, then we can be super conservative. But you, you, you won't have a job for very long, and that's not the game. The game is to try and figure out how much can I do before the person gets broken. Yeah. And so we're trying to figure that out the best we can and recognize that sometimes we, we'll be unfortunate with that. Sometimes it'll go the wrong way, and we just hope it's not a catastrophic Failure. So we make, uh, again, if you like, our, our, our decisions, we take calculated risks, but we recognize that if it goes wrong, and, and one of the other things say that if, because it's a collective decision, if we fail, we all fail together. Mm-hmm. The coach, the, the PT, medics, the SNC, the athlete, all involved in that and said, this is what we're doing. There's no guarantee, but we're going to do our best here. Um, and if it doesn't work out, well, hey, that happens sometimes. Um, but that we don't set out to take unreasonable risks. Similarly, we don't play it super safe and hold mm-hmm. people back from the opportunity to perform. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about exposing the factors. So like you have a discussion and then everybody's aware of the risks. and the, the So it's not like your decision, you are a failure because you did that. I think if you... You expose everything that can happen in that scenario, all the possibilities, and everybody makes a decision together. Then mm. I don't think it's just on you. Yeah, for for sure, and and it shouldn't be on you. Yeah, um, I think that there are a few decisions that we might describe as purely clinical decisions around when people can play or not play. For example, some of the concussion guidelines very clear they can or they can't play or where they pose a significant risk to themselves or others. You can make a a, a very clear call from purely medical grounds, but there's not that many in the real world on this. Usually, you know, it's it's much more of that joint decision-making approach around determining what the benefits are. And and I often say that, you know, if, if you ask an athlete, what is successful rehab or what, what was key? What's the thing that most athletes will ask us? Like, How long until I'm back? So for them, it's often about getting back as quickly as possible. For our coaches, they then want to know, well, is he back or is she back playing? And will they be competing at the highest possible level? So they're often interested in the performance. And then when we talk to the, our you know, physios, medical staff, it's the, are they coming back and is it going to be safe? Or can we prevent recurrence? So I would say a successful decision is all three. They get back as quickly as possible, performing at a high level with a, a minimal risk of recurrence. You know, and, and for me, that's what success looks like. It's not one or the other because we've also always got to take into account reducing, doing it as quickly as possible, and also the quality of the performance of the athlete, as well then as, if you like, the, the medical bit of preventing recurrence. Yeah. Because if you leave it to the athlete, he's always going to go back and, and start as soon as possible. And yeah. then it might not turn out good. So it's good that it's a shared decision and, and everybody's looking at their perspectives. And then mm. together, hopefully, they can have a, make the best decision. Definitely. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and I think that's where, in order to, to facilitate that, some of those really good conversations and the ability to connect well with coaches and and athletes is going to be really key. Um, getting away from using typical medical jargon, using overly technical terms, 
um, being able to frame it in an understandable, uh, um, very uh, easily relatable way. You know, so, you know, for example, I, I can give an example, just a really simple one in many ways of, of a player um, a little while ago who was coming back from, um, had, had had a groin injury and was out for a period of time. And as a result, then didn't have as good a preseason training as they might like in terms of preparing for the season because they were injured for part of it. Um, there was a lot of pressure from the coach and from the player to continue to play, whereas, or, or to get back into playing. Whereas what we found was the, the, the PT, the SNC coaches were saying, Oh, the, this guy needs more preseason in order for him to, to compete and get back in safely. And I remember then that's when I tend to get called in. Okay. So then I get a call from the, from the physio. And then I got a call from the head coach and from the national head coach as, as well around this player. And, um, it, there had been a bit of a standoff between these two things. And, and, you know, I had, I spoke with the athlete as well, but the, the way I tried to frame it was, okay, so I can understand why you want this guy to play. He's a really critical member of the team. I can understand why he wants to play because that's what players want. That's what athletes want to do as they want to compete. But, you know, how, how I phrased it to him was a little more along the lines of, okay, so the problem is he's a little undercooked. Yeah. And so that carries with it a bit of risk. So if we want them to play, how are we going to reduce that risk together? And how can we build, find another way to build all of the things that we want to build that he hasn't gotten through a preseason? And that's a very different conversation. So then the coach went, okay, well, actually, if he played, you know, um, to uh, just half time, you know, uh, um, on each of these games and we progressed his exposure back to playing over this period of time. And if I controlled what his weekly training looks like in this way, how does that sound? And it's the coach who's leading that conversation. Then now, I went, yeah, that's exactly what we need. And 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 so for me, the, the, the simple difference in saying something like, he's a little bit undercooked. And so if you push him too hard, he'll break. How do you, what do you think? You know, um, and so being able to use language that, that, coaches can relate to easily or um, I, I often as well think about using previous examples of metaphor uh, or telling stories with with coaches and players is, are, are really important so that they understand you know and I'll, I'll say do you remember how this guy had this thing and, and it didn't quite work out for us well it's a bit like that so so how do we how do we make sure that doesn't happen again and rather than I'm the expert and I'm going to tell you what to do Mm -hmm. just it doesn't work yeah something that they can relate to totally. like a practical example yeah. yeah very cool so now on the technical expertise mm -hmm. um so what are the things that the things that you think are important to try in the high performance environment so um, as as we chatted about there just at the at the beginning tech being technically good is really important i think and um, like like anything, I've always been fascinated with the idea of expertise and mastery, and it takes time, and it takes a lot of work, and it and it takes a lot of deliberate uh, practice and a lot of reflective practice and a lot of focused development. So I think I think that's the f the first thing. So where are the some of the places that we would want to direct our attention to? I think uh, as PTs, it's absolutely important to lay a really strong foundation of the fundamentals anatomy physiology exercise physiology the pathology 
and biomechanics and make sure that we're really good on those things. Um, I, what I often see when, when, because I also teach in the university and postgraduate courses and, in, and other courses. And when I'm doing viva or practical exams and we're talking about clinical reasoning, where people tend to fall down is that they, their, their fundamental basic science isn't good enough. Um, because I've always said, if I understand those things really well, then I can, so I can reason my way out of most of the problems that I encounter clinically to be technically really good. And so you can't build all the other stuff on top of it, something that's got a shaky foundation. And so what tends to happen is that people will see particular treatment approaches, or they may see some things that are perhaps relatively fashionable in terms of treatment approaches around specific areas in and of themselves are often very good. But when people then focus on that, when they're not based upon good solid foundations when something a little bit different or more challenging comes in then for me that that's usually when when challenges start to happen and you know i've i've, I've said for a long time and it tends to get quoted a bit is that you know rehab is training in the presence of injury so if you don't understand training principles then i don't think you can rehab someone but if i also don't understand the injury pathology, the tissue type, how this tissue responds to specific types of loading, um, how I can modify that load over time, what the time course of that is, how the biomechanics of their sport relates to to that injury, to the impairment, then it's going to be really hard to be technically really good. And so it's a very long-winded answer, Mariana. But, but for me, you've got to understand the body. You've got to understand the injury. You've got to understand training, understand biomechanics. You've got to really understand your sport. And you've got to understand people. And if you like, then not to get into the non-time, I would suggest they are technical skills, the ability to connect with your players and your uh, or your athletes, your patients, um, and to put all that together with good clinical reasoning is key. So I think if you get that bit right, then actually the rest of the stuff very much follows on from there. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm curious to ask you, how did you develop your your skills as a sports physio. Yeah. Um, so if, I guess if we think of some of those, I've, I've had examples of some really good uh, mentors and teachers over time who've modeled this. So and, and being particularly impressed with people who their anatomical knowledge or physiological knowledge was, was really good. I was fortunate enough, um, my PhD, as I mentioned, was in muscle and muscle physiology. And, and so I spent a few years of really deeply immersing myself within physiology and then I guess less intimidated by much of the physiological um, literature and taking time to really understand some of our training and take a lot of time to read um, lots of papers to speak to people who really understand it and then to try to apply it and contextualize it to understand the sports take time and really speak take a lot of time talking to coaches ask them to explain their sport um, I know you have a background in gymnastics, Mariana. So when I've worked with gymnastics, really taking time to chat with the gymnastics coaches around what is it about this that is particularly challenging? What are you trying to achieve? What's the what's the training philosophy? What are some of the different um, pieces of apparatus, for example, and how does that relate to the challenges and the stresses that are there? So taking time to really understand and then um, taking lots of time to practice, 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 practice. We wouldn't expect our athletes um, or anyone to become really skilled at anything without practicing a lot. So getting opportunities to practice. So, um, with, you know, I often 
often make the distinction, and I talked with someone yesterday about this, there's a big distinction between information and knowledge. Yeah, So we can get lots of information, and that's where podcasts are amazing for getting great information, um, reading papers, um, listening to lectures, all of the things, great for getting information. The way we get knowledge, however, is by doing that. You know, is taking the information and then putting it into practice. And we've got to really, the other way I view knowledge, knowledge is know-how. Yeah. Information is the, is there to give us the, the background, but then we've got to develop the know-how and we do that through practice. Yeah. We have so much information available that if it was that easy, everybody would know everything. But totally. that's, that's the hard part, applying and, mm. and seeing how it plays out in practice, right? For sure, for sure. And I would suggest that our profession is a practice first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you decide to um, let an athlete go back, not, not you because you already talked about it, is a, everybody decides together. But so what are the things that you're look at, looking at from like a PT perspective, mm-hmm. from the recovery? Like what are the things that are important uh, do you have yeah. tests? Like, how, how does it work? Yeah, I think, um, again, I've been doing this job for a, for a little while. Um, and in the past, the old days where we used to often have, you know, got to have a fitness test to see if this guy or girl can resp- get back to sport. I think we've evolved over time and that's, that's um, less common. Back in 2016, um, Claire Arden's the, the, the primary author on it, but we, along with uh, a group, arranged a consensus statement on return to sport decision making. And I would certainly recommend people to look at that in terms of um, how we, we get there. I think the key things for me in terms of getting people back is it, it sort of is the counterpoint of not risking repetition here, but having real clarity on when we're trying to get back on the goals of when we want to, to try and get back. Okay. okay. And so, and then what the physical requirements are in order to perform that safely and, and effectively. And so how strong do we need to be? Uh, how much mobility do we need? What um, running exposure, for example, do we need to have? I think understanding the sport, the performance goals, the development stage of the athlete, the impact that the injury has had on performance and, and what are the impairments as a direct and indirect effect of the injury and also the potential for recurrence. Then I think what, what I want to do is have milestones for recovery along the entire rehab journey. So it's never just you know an event, but a process. And so we're training. I'm, I'm very much of the mindset of the training is testing and testing is training and rehab is testing. So we naturally progress and we've got really clear logical progressions along the different um, criteria. So progressions through strength, progressions through range of motion, progressions in, in motor control, progressions in skill execution, and then, you know, the progressions as well in terms of the endurance demands and then the progressions performance components of it. And so we're very clear in those, what, how strong do we need to be? What, what, sub-components of strength, be that eccentric strength, isometric strength, um, power, um, power endurance, 
and so on. Um, we might look at what range of motion we need, what the what the the endurance demands, what the sprint running exposure has been for a particular sport. So we've got lots of different metrics that that we're tracking as we go. And for me, then uh, as we track, it tells me the status and the progression of the athlete as they're going through the rehab um, program. That, that one of the key things, however, will be: can I put all that together on the field or on the court or on the um, uh, w- w- whatever your playing um, in- environment is? Can I put all that together and execute that skill under pressure with decision making? Because that you, if you can do it in the clinic in an isolated fashion, doesn't mean that you can do it out there. And so, I think we progress through those different milestones until we, if you like, get the on-field or the sport uh, uh, on court or wherever um, uh, training. And I think very clearly we have to ensure that we have exposed the athlete to the demands that reflect the demands of the sport before we decide. So, So for me, if we have planned our rehab appropriately, then returning to sport is the next natural step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I- Go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. I talk, I talk a lot. <laughs> no, I was just thinking here. So you had to develop. How do you come up with like all these objective measurements, these milestones, because they are different to each part. So someone has to have the time, take the time. I don't know if the PT combined with the coach to come up with these measurements and, and, and develop that kind of, because once you have like, let's say that protocol for say, of the milestones that you have to reach in each each phase of the treatment, uh, then it becomes easy to understand if the person is able to go back or not, or it becomes a little more clear because you have those objective measurements that you're trying to achieve and guide the treatment towards. So, like, how do you come up with all those those requirements? Yeah, it's um, it's it's a large project of work for for sure um one of the things that i've tried to to move towards in the last few years and encourage is that um our rehabilitation as much as is possible should reflect normal training and the things that normal training are trying to achieve so there would be the sport and my colleague in irish rugby uh, nick winkleman who's the head of athletic performance often asked the question what does the sport require but does not provide yeah. And so if we understand the requirements of the sport, well, whatever that might be. So there'll be certain sporting metrics that that coaches will have. And I think they're really helpful. But then there's other other things that uh, characteristics that we're trying to develop that maybe are not as obvious. And so they may be things like setting strength standards. We take time to set strength standards for all of the major um, muscle groups or movement patterns. Um, of what, what, and we have that benchmark or standards there. We also have standards in terms of running exposure, in terms whether that's um, total distance run, um, high metabolic low distance, sprint exposures, accelerations, so what that looks like over time. We also have measures of specific um, tests like, for example, eccentric hamstring strength, um, counter movement jump, um, rotator cuff strength, um, and we have all of these as baselines. So we, we're, we're testing people all the time, and we're training those characteristics as part of their normal training. So when they drop into rehab, we still test the same things, 
and we train the same things, but we're doing it now in the presence of injury. So we do, and and as I see where I'm progressing back to where I need to be towards those robustness standards, as we call them, are also a return to, to sport standards. That's fascinating. That's yeah. very, very interesting. I always thought that I was going to go to that route of sports physio and end up going to a different way, but I think that's very fascinating. Very fascinating. Uh, so before we wrap up, anything else, Phil, that you want to add to our discussion here? Um, to, as you can probably tell, I can I could talk about these things <laughs> um, for for a long time. I th I think sometimes people, um, which I probably should have said, try to create this idea that high performance is this big thing up here. Uh, but for me, at its heart, it's about being really good, um, and it's about being the best you can be. And trying to develop real mastery in what you do, whatever, wherever that is, and whatever you're doing, um, and that that sense of you never really get it ever. You're never finished improving. You're you're never really arrive. And from time to time, you maybe access the point where you go, oh yeah, that was great. But do you know how you can do that consistently and do that over time? That's the thing that that really drives me and fascinates me, and it's the thing that I I want to see for our. For our players, our athletes, and for our staff as well. That's that fascinating. It's a constant learning curve of improvement and, and being better. Uh, Phil, any resource of information that you recommend our guests if they want to um, learn more about the topic? Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's lots, lots of sources, isn't there? And there's lots of uh, things. One thing that I, that I think is important for, for me and I certainly recommend is for people to have a um, pretty broad range of sources. And um, I've always pushed back against the idea that it was just pure science and then the arts and humanities. Do you know, I think I think we, it's all knowledge, it's all information. And, and um, I think all the usual journals are key, but I, I encourage people to read broadly and to listen to things more broadly, particularly ones that are outside your your you know immediate domain of of work. I think that's really important so that you don't get caught up in an echo chamber. And particularly nowadays, um, where we you know we keep clicking on the same things, we get fed the same things. It's really important to think a little bit more broadly. Um, I, I think in terms of you know papers. There's a, there is a really lovely paper by Zulman. I'll just give you the reference. You can put it in the show notes potentially. Um, um, Zulman in, in JAMA in 2020, and it was about practices to foster presence and connection with patients in clinical encounters. I think it's a really lovely paper and identifies some really key principles there. So I think that's that's one paper that I think is good. Um, there's lots of books, and most of the books I read aren't specific. I guess where I am right now aren't specific to. To physical therapy, but um, things like Great at Work by Morton Hansen, Mark and Marcus Buckingham's book, First Break All the Rules, Culture Code by Dan Coyle, um, 4,000 Weeks, Oliver Berkman would be a few standouts I've read in the last year or two that I, I would recommend. And you know, podcasts as well. There's so many great podcasts like, like your own uh, and many others. Um, I think that um, making sure that we, we take time to Think broadly, but also take time to really try to assimilate that. And I think that's one of the the other things that I would say is read broadly, take time to do it, but also take time when we're not actually reading or listening to things, but actually thinking about how we apply the information we've heard into the real world. Yes. And I think you already answered my next question. That would be an advice to PTs that are starting their careers. Yeah, I think um, I think take time to as I've, I've, I've touched on there, to 
to lay a really strong foundation in both the technical and non-technical. Um, we identify some of the seminal papers around basic physiology and, and so on. But, but one of the other things is take time to, to be present and really learn how to give your attention to the right thing. Um, it's what someone once said, one of the most important things is to give attention um, to what you're giving your attention to, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, because our attention is our, is our most precious thing. Um, and so learning to be attentive, learning to be present, um, learning to, to really delve deeply into something I think is going to be really key. Um, and the other key things I think in terms of starting our careers is um, build strong relationships, take time to invest in building strong relationships, um, identify a mentor if you can, and, and a, or maybe a number of mentors, um, because I think mentoring, coaching and people to help us is particularly important. So I think for me, that's the key thing is um, lay a really strong theoretical foundation. Um, take take real notice of what you're giving your attention to and identify a mentor. Find a mentor who can help you develop will be really important. Very good. And, and Phil, if people want to uh, find you, contact you or look for you on social media, is there any way that they can... Uh, yeah, um, so um, you find me online. Website is philglasgow.com um, and at philglasgow on, on X. I almost said Twitter, X, and, and all the usual socials and on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Phil, for taking the time to share your knowledge uh, with us today. So I appreciate you, you coming here and, and it was a great, great conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Mariana. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians you think might benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show, and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It is very helpful. Also, on the show notes, you can find the guest's contact information and favorite resources, Links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel where you can watch the whole episode, and our website where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening and until next time. <music>